0: On today's podcast, we got Toby Mathis talking to all things tax and legal. Now make sure you guys go to our Simple Passive Cashflow YouTube channel, which has almost a thousand subscribers, which is a the key there. Until I get a thousand subscribers, I can't monetize that thing to help me get over the hump. And I think I need about 20 more to go. And also go to the website and grab that 2018 single family home analyzer that I've been updating And if you guys haven't gotten that, you need to get your hands on it. And if you guys are interested in the cocoa farms that I recently visited, give me an email at lane at simplepassacashual.com. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey, simple passive cash flows listeners. Today, I got Toby Mathis on the line.
1: I'm glad to be here and uh, get to talk to your folks.
0: So that cat in the background is not CG. It's
1: it's the real thing.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I have my cat. That's his name is actually Clint. Believe it or not, that's uh, my business partner got him for me and named it after himself. If you knew Clint, you would uh, understand. Yeah. So Toby uh, Mathis is partner
0: of uh, Anderson Advisors, and his his partner there is Clint Coons. Up there in Washington, Toby's calling from Vegas right now. And he, his mm-hmm. book, if you guys want to check it out, is Tax Wise Business Ownership. And we're gonna be talking. I've got I've, I've got you for what about thirty, a little over thirty minutes. So we're just gonna hammer out some start of the year tax planning tips.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So maybe talk through some bigger concepts that I'm a little confused on. So I'm thinking everybody else is. That's, if you guys want to check out the cat, go to the YouTube channel and check out the feed there. For those of you in podcast land Toby decided to dress up for us tonight he's wearing a very very sharp suit there he's very lawyer-esque of him which he only, um, I'm
1: not wearing any pants though
0: <laughs> more so to check out the YouTube video yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into it and um, the reason I like Toby is he's not one of these guys that says giggles to himself and says it's the pens it drives me crazy when professionals say it's the pens like I, I like Toby because he's very straight to the point. With that said, let's <laughs> kind of start in the high level. Like the tax cuts of 2018, right, really shook things up last year. It came out mm-hmm. early of last year. Maybe give us an overhead of 2018
1: and 2019. Oh, wow. So the uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act that was passed at the end of 2017, uh, most of its provisions really came into effect in 2018, And it has literally turned the tax world up on its head. You used to have about, want to say 30 to 40% of the taxpayers would itemize deductions. That looks like it's going to be down between 10 and 20%. So I think you're talking about a 60% reduction at a minimum of people who no longer are going to be itemizing. What that means is your itemized deductions include things like your mortgage deduction, your state and local taxes, including your real estate taxes, your medical expenses and your charitable deductions, and so we knew this was going to happen. This time last year, we were kind of sounding the warning cries: "Hey, charities aren't going to be too excited, and there's going to be some people hit pretty hard that are in taxable states where they're going to be uh, capped at what they can write off." the the throw The throwback from the government was: "Hey, we're going to give you this higher standard deduction." But the practical impact is that as individuals, chances are you're not going to get the benefit of the taxes you pay to the state, and you're not going to get the benefit of the taxes you pay on mortgage, not the taxes, but the uh, interest you're paying. About 90% of taxpayers are going to go to the standard deduction, which uh, in 2018 was $24,000. It's adjusted for inflation, so it's going up a little bit. But just means that we're looking at some pretty significant changes for individual taxpayers. On the business side, it couldn't have been better. They literally cut the corporate tax rate almost in half. They are now capping the corporate tax rate at uh, 21%. For individuals What, what who, was that at that earlier? Uh, it went up to 39% and it was on a fluctuating matter. So you would go to 35, 39, 37. It was bouncing around in the in the upper 30s. Oh, I see. I see. So, so that's why
0: you know if you're if you're above that twenty one percent on your personal put it on your personal or you know, vice versa put it on the better one. So,
1: well, so uh, a lot of accountants immediately say when you hear corporation, don't do it because you're going to have a double tax. And I don't buy into that. When a corporation makes money, so you're you're you know you look at a typical corporation, a C corp, it pays tax on its earnings but unless it pays it to the shareholder, there's no additional tax. If it does pay it to the shareholder, that shareholder pays the tax at their long-term capital gains rate. It's not an ordinary tax situation. So it's really difficult to hurt yourself now with the corporate tax rates here. It's possible to to cause yourself to have to pay an extra 1% or 2% in the worst scenario. In the best scenario, you're saving 16, 17, 18 plus plus percent by having the corporation earn it. So a lot of high income folks that have businesses, for example, they're splitting their income out so that they're keeping their personal income at a, at a low enough threshold where they're not in the highest brackets and they're letting the corporation earn a lot more with the idea that they still have control over those funds. It's there's, there's a lot you can do from a deduction standpoint with a corporation that you can't do with an individual as well. And it opens up that whole world, including you and I pay for medical expenses. We have to exceed, right now, it's 10% of our adjusted gross income. In 2018, it was uh, 7.5 before we can write off a dime. A C corporation can reimburse you 100% of your out-of-pocket, your copays, your deductibles, and cover your insurance too deducted against its income. So it's not even close. And by the way, your medical deductions would be part of your standard deduction. So again, it would be on your schedule A. So you'd have to see whether or not you even get a benefit. Even if you did exceed your adjusted gross income floor, 90% of the time it gives you zero benefit. And so I can just say, hey, having that C corporation floating around ends up being a pretty nice tax maneuver for certain things like, again, health, medical, dental, vision, all those things be your best friend all right
0: so kind of backing up 2019 this year and 2018 is there any
1: differences or is there's some yeah there's some slight differences the biggest ones so first off the the tax brackets move every year to avoid what they call bracket creep it used to be based on inflation and now it's some bizarre calculation (laughs) but they go up a little bit. Yeah, so just, every year they move.
0: Just like retirement accounts increment and moving up or or the 401k and
1: Roth. Yep. So those ones went up 500 bucks to went from yeah. 5,500 to six. But uh, we're not really concerned about that too much since it's kind of small potatoes in terms of the- bigger. That is small potatoes. The, the uh, one, one thing that might have an impact on folks is, well, there's the alimony, which is the most bizarre issue I've ever seen. If you get a divorce going forward, your alimony is not deductible. So if you're paying alimony, you're paying tax on that. You, the one who's paying it. So think about this. If you get divorced, uh, be thinking about that and calculate and, that in.
0: And that change in going from 2018 to 19, or was that part of the original?
1: Yeah. Tax, it, tax well, the, the law was, yeah, the, the law was passed in 2017, but the imp- this one came into effect on January 1st. And what it is is, you can no longer, so, uh, you know, everybody always thinks the guy's paying the girl, but the girl could be paying the guy too, or the guy paying the guy and the girl paying the girl. It just depends on what type of marriage you have. It's whoever's paying it used to be able to de- to deduct the alimony they paid to their ex-spouse. Uh, now you can't do that. It used to be that the ex-spouse would pay tax on that alimony. That is gone. But it's only for divorces that are finalized January 1st of 2019 and beyond. So- but- So if you have one going back 10 years, don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. You just forget about it. you know, it's in the past, but going forward, especially for, and I have clients that at the end of the year still were in that situation where they're, they're looking at finalized divorce decrees. And I said, well, it's going to be a pretty significant change whether you get divorced now or whether you wait a month and make sure that your attorneys are addressing it. And their attorneys had no idea. So, you know, they would have walked them into a pretty horrible situation.
0: Right, right, and then the other incremental change is
1: the mileage going up from fifty four to fifty eight or so. That's, that's yep bigger. It, it was fifty three point five to fifty eight cents a mile, and that's if you're reimbursing business miles. So right. there's a lot of things that get adjusted for inflation. The, the estate tax exclusion goes up. Everything gets 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 incrementally moved. The standard deduction goes up slightly i think went from uh 12,000 for an individual and 24,000 for married filing jointly to 12,200 and 12,400 like it's not huge but there's these little movements right the,
0: the personal deduction got lumped into the standard is that what happened for the most regular the regular folks
1: yeah uh, so they called an exemption and those went the way of the dinosaur so did miscellaneous itemized deductions that was a huge one. And then for you business guys out there and business gals, entertainment went out is, was gone as of January 1st of last year. You can no longer write off entertainment expenses. In my town, they're building a stadium for the Raiders. It's going to be the Las Vegas Raiders unless a lawsuit stops. it. And people were going out and buying luxury boxes again through their companies. And I'm explaining to them, that's not deductible anymore. What? You know, I had one guy who was actually down there about to put his money down. And I said, it's not a deductible expense. it's It's gone. I and mean, he literally walked out. He said, well, I'm not going to pay these fees then. <laughs> and I was like, good. You know, you're not going to get to write it off. Yeah.
0: So let's kind of break that one down because that's one of the big changes that affected me personally. First thing, deducting meals. You know, mm-hmm. We can break it down into the, the categories. Well,
1: And whatnot. So meals were always in one of two categories. And I don't want to get too technical because it makes people's heads hurt, but I'll just make it just plain English. You're either entertaining a client or you're expecting to get business. If you're expecting to get business and you're and you're doing business at that meeting, then it's not entertainment and you can write off 50% of that meal. If you are entertaining a client, meaning that you're not doing business, but it's associated with other business. You can no longer deduct that meal. It used to be that you could. It used to be if we wanted to go skiing after a business meeting, we could actually write it off. It was associated with the business meeting. Anything that happened 24 hours before or after that meeting, we deduct. That's gone. So you again, what
0: is that distinction again? You need to be going after a sale.
1: You need to be discussing business. So Lane, the easiest way to uh, articulate this is let's say you and I say we're going to We'll get a beer and we want to talk about, about your taxes. And then we sit down, and we talk a little bit about your taxes, but then we talk about my cool cat and we talk about animals or whatever. And then we get completely sidetracked. We talk about Seattle and how flipping rainy it is. And I can see a, a New York Yankees cap up there. And I can't believe you lived in Seattle and you still have that. It's just not right No, But anyway, uh, as long as we were going there for the tax, we can write everything off. Now, flip that around, and if we're going to go talk about cats or whatever, uh, or baseball, and we're going to talk about the Mariners and the good old days of uh, Ken Griffey Jr. and Alex Rodriguez. More uh, relationship-building trip. Yep, and we go there, but but we talk about taxes. I can't write that off because the purpose of the meeting wasn't to talk about taxes. You as the taxpayer are the one who's in control of the purpose of that meeting and how you document it. So this becomes really important when you're dealing with your accountant. If you tell them something like, yeah, we were entertaining clients, they're going to not write it off. If you say, yeah, we were there to get business, and we were talking about business, they're going to write it off. So So the the point is, quit BSing around and just talk business. Well, the purpose of, of your stuff should be business. Hey, we're meeting to have a business meeting. And then if we goof off, we can goof off.
0: Have you ever listened to a podcast or been in a seminar and too afraid to ask a slightly personal question? Our mastermind will have an intimate feel where people are going through the program together and at their own pace if needed, in order to foster friendships. When I was learning and paying thousands of dollars for masterminds and mentorships, the network, however hokey pokey as it sounds, was a big part of it. What happens in the mastermind stays in the mastermind. We'll use the bi-weekly webinar sessions to dissect concepts with real-life examples. Hear how someone else might implement something like infinite banking concept on a hot seat session. Our group will attract thought leaders to meet just with our exclusive group. We can get FaceTime and ask individual questions. Why? Because our group will be people who put their money where their mouth is and go out and make things happen, as opposed to your local REI club. Which is traditionally just a bunch of tire kickers and some sharks. Simplepassivecashflow.com dot com backslash journey to learn more. Can we change the scenario up a little bit? Let's just say um, you come to Hawaii here mm-hmm. and you hang out with me, and you, you want to pick up some single family homes wherever, and you want to, you know, connect with me to maybe help you out or advise you. Mm-hmm. you know, in formal coaching does that count?
1: Yeah. So. So now we're talking about the difference between traveling for business and traveling okay. for pleasure.
0: Well, let, let's say let's say I went to Vegas there, and I yeah. stopped into your office.
1: All right. So the first thing to understand is that the IRS is nothing more than a policing agency. They just follow the laws and make sure they enforce it. So they look at the United States is almost like a small town. I I could go to we could go to Waikiki just as easy as I go to New York, just as easy as I can go next door for business. It's all in the North American region. So I can, for business, I can go anywhere. It doesn't like it. it, I have continuing education as an attorney and I could go to a class that is in my building where my, one of our offices are, are held and I could go to that one or I could choose to, to go to Honolulu and have that same meeting in Honolulu. The IRS can't tell you, whether or not you should go to one or the other, it's business period. A business day is four hours and one minute. That means that day counts as a full business day. And the way you, you judge travel is, was more than 50% of it business. So if I go to Hawaii and I'm going to be there for seven days, I need to make sure that I have four business days. If that's the case, I can deduct the travel to and from Hawaii, the airline tickets. Now, I can include the travel days as part of that calculation. So, if I go there for technically for two days of business, I'm getting four days total. I could stay an extra three days and still be considered having a business trip. That's critical. Now, what's business? Anything that's making me look like I'm trying to make some money. So, if I go there and I hang out with you, Lane, and we spend the better part of a day together, looking at real estate, that's a business day. If we go there and we have a conference, business day. If I'm teaching, business day. If you're teaching, well, that would be a business day for you. But if I'm attending, business day. Those things start to add up and you we're always looking at these 50% thresholds to make sure that the, the trip actually qualifies. So that's kind of how you look at it. And if it does, then you can write off 100% of the, the traveling to and from, and you can write off the business days for the hotel and things like that. You can write off the meals and entertainment, or not the entertainment anymore, but you can write off the meals, and you can you can deduct those things. So a lot of it all of a sudden becomes business expense. And then here's the, the throw one. A lot of folks, again, tend to get scared of corporations because they think of this double tax. If a corporation can't write something off It's taxable at the corporate rate, but remember you already spent the money. So it's this, it's just taxable income, but it's not sitting in the corporation, but it's taxed at a flat 21%. And so if you can only write off half the meal, it's much better to let your corporation pay that expense and only get to write off half as opposed to you, where you may be in a higher tax bracket. So I'm always going over this stuff with the higher end guys, especially they're always, you know, their accountants tend to be pretty sketchy. They're, they're scared. A lot of times, because the numbers are big and the accountant actually could be held responsible for mistakes, so they tend to be very conservative in the advice they give. So, and is, I, the,
0: is the best practice to just put it on like a spreadsheet or just a schedule and you guys figure out w- which deduction goes on a personal or, or which corporation or LLC? or?
1: Well, usually what you're doing is you're saying, I want to have one main business entity where I do my active business and everything else is in the passive side and we run all of our expenses through one main entity that's okay. really like like you know and when i talk about your expenses i'm not talking about property taxes for your rentals and things like that those are associated with that specific piece of property i'm talking about if you're flying traveling buying meals paying for education anything like that you try to run it through one organization and that's where you take your payroll that's where you do your retirement plans that's where you do everything and it, i always call it a management entity it's kind of like your main active entity and it can get paid from all the passive entities. So the easiest way to think about this is if I have three LLCs or one main holding LLC and it has a bunch of rentals in it, I aggregate those out. At the end of the day, you're paying on the net. And if I have $50,000 positive income, that's going to flow into my return. I can take a chunk of that off in a management fee to the C corp. As long as I have some basis for doing so reasonable basis, if That corporation is managing the LLCs. You have a statutory right to take that fee. And if you paid $20,000 up to the C-Corp, because it's going to expense a bunch of stuff, you only pay tax on the remaining $30,000. So it ends up being a nice, I call them a safety valve. They become a really nice safety valve. And it's really great for families because you can run your kids and everything else through it. And of course, if you pay your kids chances are their tax brackets can be lower than you. And you can also give them a bunch of benefits. So it ends up being a really good scenario for most taxpayers.
0: So going back to the whole deducting travel, here's a here's a scenario that comes up a lot of times. And I, I hear this, people like to use this technique. They call it the sandwich technique, I guess. Mm-hmm. Say, say a family's got, or a guy's got 10 days, he's going to go visit Vegas or Hawaii or Kansas City to go look at his rentals. But then he, you know, he's not looking at stuff the whole time, or it's it's hard to fill up those ten days. What are Remember. some some ideas into in, you know optimizing those deductions for that longer trip?
1: Yeah, there's actually some great cases on this. So uh, again, a business day is four hours and one minute, and it's not technically what you actually did; it's what you intended to do. So, for example if I flew to Honolulu to, to give a conference and the conference got canceled at the last minute and I'm sitting in Honolulu going, oh, crap, I'm not going to be speaking. It doesn't matter. That's still a business. That's still a business trip because my intent was to go do business. That's really what the IRS looks at. So if I was going to Kansas City and I wanted to, to spread this thing out, A, I would be looking at four-hour increments. I'd make sure that if you had something you could do in one day for eight hours, I'd probably break it into two days at four hours apiece. It's like when we go to Hawaii, we usually meet for the mornings. That's it. Then we're done. We're going to go goof off and play on the beach and stuff like that. So, if so that's number one is looking and saying, let's make sure that we're using time management. Let's not all cram it into one or two days. Let's spread that out. Number two, you can bookend around a weekend. If you are there on a Friday for business and Monday for business, Saturday and Sunday count as business days. If it's a federal holiday, like it's a three-day weekend, then you do. Kind of like the freebie on the bingo board, right? You got it. it. You get some freebies, and then you get the travel days. So if I worked Friday and Monday, I would have... Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday is business days because I get the travel days too. I'm up to six business days. I could stay an extra five days. And I only actually did two business days. So that's how it works. Now, you don't want to sit there and try to change all of your, you know, the way you conduct business over this stuff. But you do want to be aware because it's very easy to make something into a business trip if you know ahead of time.
0: It sounds complicated, guys, but I know some of you guys are there are sharpshooting your corporate
1: for DMs and travel days and all that stuff. So
0: it's lot simpler than
1: that. It's really easy, and this is not a pitch, but one of, the, one of the things we do is something called Platinum, which is just an unlimited question and answer that someone can ask questions. With our clients, typically what they're doing is before they're going on a trip, they're going to just ask a simple question. How do I make this into a business trip? and then we can just say hey you know what are you, what are you going to be doing hey why don't you do this that and the other and that way we can categorize it as a business trip so it's it's always 10 minutes before will save you 10 hours of agony later you know so if if if, if you answer, if you ask a question for, and it could only it could it could literally be a 5 minute if someone just called me up and said hey toby i'm i'm going to be going here and this this is what i want to do i'm going to Kansas city i want to be there for 10 days how do I make it work? And I'm will ask them a few questions like, well, what are you gonna be doing when you're there? You know, how how much time are you gonna be spending on your existing rentals versus looking for new ones? How many hours do you want to spend? And then where's your where's your family? And we can usually build a pretty nice scenario to where they can make sure they're in the safety as, and they can write the trip off.
0: Right. And and they, they need to sort of substantiate it via receipts or logs and
1: in writing. And it, and one of the things that really works well are these little things that we all carry around. Just grab your phone, and put it on your calendar. That's a written record. All right. So so
0: just for clarification, when you guys come to Hawaii, you guys got your morning breakfast and your workshop in the morning, and then you go off and have fun. You guys are riding off the the breakfast buffet at the Turtle Bay and all that Hyatt stuff. But <laughs> the surf lessons and the. um, not really, you know, there's really nothing that goes on in Hawaii for nighttime. But <laughs> if there was some kind
1: of You're going on like, a sunset cruise, right? Yeah,
0: something <laughs> like that, or some random concert at the Blaisdell, or something like that you can't you can't write that off. That's entertainment.
1: We actually, uh, we actually, uh, what was it, Koalina? We were up there in the King Tides with their uh, outrigger. We smashed it into <laughs> the rocks. <laughs> can't write that off either. <laughs>
0: All right, I think I think we've got this distinction done. Mm-hmm. Um, what about just say you're you're out in Vegas by yourself or with your with your spouse there and you're talking business at dinner?
1: Um, that's a real tough one. So the IRS is going to tend to look at that as more personal than business. But if your if spouse works in your business with you, and you document a business meal, which could be just documenting by putting it in your phone, saying we're having a meeting, then that would qualify. As a business meal. And just remember you're writing off 50% of it. It's not like you're completely going crazy and it's a tax credit or anything. It, you're still spending the money and it's a deduction. It's just you're writing off half.
0: Yeah. And and that's that's where, you know, reiterate the disclaimer of this show. It's just a bunch of ideas. You guys can do what you want. Me personally, what I do with this is I don't write off all the little tic-tacky things like, oh, went to McDonald's for seven bucks or whatever. Some of the bigger ones, it you know, it'll be a very it'll be a minority of meals that I'll write off. I don't wanna be mm-hmm. greedy. That's kind of my my personal
1: viewpoint on it. We use the pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered analogy a lot. You don't want to be too crazy. There's plenty of ways to not pay tax. Like you can minimize your tax. You're in real estate. We were talking about this before. You can do a cost segregation and really reduce your taxes. If you're a real estate professional, there's a good chance you'll never pay taxes, even on your personal income, if you do these things right. There's plenty of ways to not pay tax. The the trick is not to go into risky areas that we know will trigger audits. We can actually see the stats. The IRS publishes them every year. Anybody can go in there and read it. Sometimes it'll look like gibberish, but if you understand how to read what the forms are and you, you look at the examination rates and what they're examining and whether it's field audits or correspondence, you can, you can make a pretty good educated decision as to what your risk is. And if it's a fraction of a, a fraction of 1%, you're not worried.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's kind of talk about that a little bit. Cause I think a lot of, a lot of listeners are more passive investors. So, you know, mm-hmm. they're writing off their trips when they go to, you know, Birmingham or, you know, when they talk, when they come and hang out with me in, in Hawaii or whatnot. Mm -hmm. They're always a little bit scared, right? But what happens actually in an audit?
1: Yeah, first off, don't be scared. The IRS, they're they're just a police officer. So if you're not doing anything crazy and intentionally trying to rip off the government, you have nothing to worry about. They're just trying to enforce the laws. They don't want to go to tax court or do any of these other things. They want to have like, hey, just making sure that you're not doing anything too crazy and that you keep records. That's really what it is. When you get, go through an audit, I've been through uh, so many, uh, even on our companies, we're a pretty large company. And so that's one of the things that's going to get you audited is if you make a lot of money, chances are you're going to get audited. If you make very little money and you take an earned income credit, you're probably going to get audited. If you're in the middle, you're probably never going to get audited. You know, so there's just certain areas where, where they, keep, they seem to go. But in an audit, all they're doing is spot checking to make sure that you're keeping books and records. So if you have a P&L, if you're doing QuickBooks, or if you have somebody keeping some sort of record, and it looks like you're keeping regular records, and they're pretty contemporaneous, they're going to be looking at you and checking you off and going to the next one. It's not like they sit there and dig in on every taxpayer. They just don't do that. They're just trying to see whether or not your expenses are kind of in the normal category. And so usually they're looking for the out- outlier who does something really odd. So for example, I have an attorney in Georgia that wrote off real estate losses. He had about eighty million dollars worth of commercial real estate and he cost sagged them and offset about three million dollars of his personal income, he and his spouse. His spouse qualified as a real estate professional. The IRS looked into it because it was such a large amount. And he went, you know, and it was a it was fine. He got a rubber stamp, you know, he won the audit is what they would say. But it's not nearly as horrific as people think. If you keep your books and records, that's all they're looking for. And if they're good, they're just going to, and next, if they're bad, now they're going to come see you. And even if you end up with a really horrific result and they assess tax on you, you negotiate it. You go into the office of appeals. What people think is that they're negotiating with the uh, auditor. The auditor is nothing more than a calculator. They're trying to ascertain how much they think you really should owe. And then once, once that's done, then you go in and you say, here's my argument. Here's my argument. And you go into their office of appeals and you're talking to a, uh, usually a professional who understands the laws and you know, auditors are people, they make mistakes too. we have seen some big ones and you immediately rectify it. Somebody who knows what they're doing, looks at it and goes, Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. We made a mistake on this one. And they fix it. It's not something necessarily to be afraid of. It's something to be aware of. And just like a police officer, if they start asking you questions, just be respectful and answer the questions or get a lawyer or an accountant and say, Hey, uh, I need someone to help me on this. And the easiest thing we do is we go in there and they ask for a bunch of information. We say, great, what do you want to see? And then we go back to the client and say, this is what they're looking for and let's make sure it looks right. And then you go back. We, we I can't think of a single scenario where we've lost an audit lane and we've seen some big ones. We had one that was a $1.3 million penalty assessment against a large oil and gas concern. And we completely eliminated it with one letter. Like they're freaking out, and we're looking at them going, eh, "They may give you a pass on this one." And they they cannot believe it, and they're like, "No, no, this is one point three million dollars. They're going to take all of our homes." Da, da da da. Like, no, let's just. I think you guys like we have a pretty good case of a of to justify your position. And we wrote one letter, and they waived the entire amount. It's like these. It's not a. It's not a monster. It's, you're just dealing with a bit of a bureaucracy and you're just going to be very succinct and give them the information they want to see. And you don't argue with them and you don't make fun of them and you don't do all that fun stuff that people like to do, or I'm going to really show this audit or something. No, it's a calculator. Don't, don't, don't mess with the calculator. They they don't have a sense of humor. They just have buttons, you know, don't push the buttons. <laughs> right.
0: I always talk about like risks to like the new guy buying that first out-of-state rental and i'm like okay really what's the worst that can happen i'm like oh. oh i don't know i was not doing it in the first place it was just
1: sort of like unknown
0: in a way an audit sort of like that you know like what's the worst
1: that can happen yeah you can lose and pay at one point you pay taxes right? plus penalties and interest yeah. that it, unless you're evading so tax avoidance the we have a An old justice uh, who's since passed, but a justice of the Supreme Court, Rehnquist, who literally wrote, There's nothing wrong with a strategy to avoid the payment of taxes. There's nothing in the Internal Revenue Code that prevents that. You can avoid taxes, but you can't evade them. If you know you owe it, you can't lie and not, you know, you could not pay it and say, Oh, I owe it and not pay it and then come up with a payment plan or try to say, Hey, please, if, if, if you're insolvent, you don't have to pay your taxes. As long as you told them what you owed, you can literally bankrupt away tax debt. So it's just about being honest. And as long as you're honest, and even if you're pushing it, you're not going to get in any trouble criminally. You may get a situation where you have some, uh, where they don't agree with your position and they try to impose some sort of penalty. That's the worst case. And the interest isn't all that much, it's half a percent. So it's like 6% a year. So they're giving you, you're basically getting to use your money. And if you're in real estate, chances are, you're making more than that return. So like what, what, what's there to lose? Not much. You could be pretty aggressive.
0: Yeah. So we're looking at like on the, on the magnitude scale of like a few thousand bucks to defend yourself and possibly pay some fees. And
1: for most people, if we do the tax return, we actually defend them. So in a lot of firms that, work with real estate investors specifically, you know, I'm going to give you a caveat, make sure that you're working with a firm that actually invests in real estate. If you are a real estate investor, like don't get the accountant that doesn't do what you do because there's nuances to owning real estate. Clinton, I have over a hundred properties. We know what it's like. We have warehouses, commercial and single family residences all over the place. I know what it's like. And I also do my taxes. So I know what yours should look like based off of mine. If I am just Joe accountant and I'm looking out of a book, I may do the wrong thing. I may do it a whole bunch and think that it's right and say, well, this is what I do with all my clients and they're doing them all wrong. You really want to have somebody that kind of does what you do and then has fear goes away and you can then push it and be aggressive. And so a lot of times what I'm saying is this is what I do. And I've been through an audit and it was fine. I have, tens of thousands of clients across the country. This is what we do with them. There's been audits, because there's, there's just that likelihood, there's less than 1% right now, it's 0.7% that you're gonna be audited. So that means that if there's 100 people, one of them's probably gonna be going through an audit. Well, we have less than that. I think we're right around a third of 1%, you know, because there's some ways to minimize his audit risk too. But you still have them, never had a negative, because, again, we're pretty like, hey, here's what you do. We know what to say. We know what it should look like. And we're the first ones to tell you if it doesn't look right, we're going to say this doesn't look right. It needs to be fixed. And don't go in and try to do things retroactively. Just go to the auditor and say this is my what my intent was. and We want to make an argument. They may assess the tax, and you go into the Office of Appeals and negotiate it. So, um, I think most people have this doomsday scenario
0: in their head that they're going to get hit for tax evasion because they hear about them as is- <laughs> – online and in articles and then they think they're going to get thrown in white collar jail. But then in reality, you know, that's just, I I think what I'm taking from your discussion is as long as you're not willfully trying to avoid taxes and you have somewhat of a logical, you
1: you can willfully avoid, you just can't willfully evade. Like, (laughs) Hey, I know I owe this, but I'm going to lie. And I'm going to say that my meal was $200 when I know it was a hundred, that's evasion. I am now lying and and manipulating my numbers and lying on my numbers. If I write off a meal and they say, Oh, this wasn't really a business meal. That's not criminal. That's they'll say, Hey, you have some tax. Yeah. That's it.
0: So, So here's another, here's a, to follow that line. I know this guy who, and sometimes I'll say that, and really, I'm that guy. But this one, I'm really not the guy because I think it's a <laughs> little bit going over the line. <laughs> I,
1: I have a friend and he does this. His yeah. name is Lane, right? No, go ahead.
0: He, he's got these decals that he sticks in the car and says he's driving around advertising for his business.
1: Like, yeah. like, where do
0: you fall on that? Where do you, what's your interpretation of that one?
1: So the rule of the day is what's your intent. If you're driving around because you're advertising your business, then it would be a business model. If you're driving around and you just happen to have the decal on your car, then that's personal use. You wouldn't write it off. So just slapping a decal.
0: He's all business all the time.
1: Yeah. So then they would look and say, are you driving around for the purpose of making money for your business? So, you know, so like if I took a truck and I, you know, and I put a big old sign on it, like they do in Vegas, they have these things that drive up and down the strip that are billboards, mobile billboards. All right. That's pretty clear advertising. If I have a, a Lexus and I slap a magnetic decal on the side, that's probably not business. That's, I'm, that, there's, there's not a reasonable expectation of, of, of making the money on it. That's, that in and of itself. Now, if I'm a realtor and I slap that decal on and I'm ri- driving around for my clients anyway, that bolsters the argument that that's a business model. And it's up to you to track it. So just know that the IRS is going to, if you have one automobile, they know part of that's personal use. Like don't say a hundred percent of it's business. That's a good way to get yourself in some, some hot water. Cause they're just going to look at that and go, wait a second. You have one car. You're going to tell them you never drive personally. You never commute you never do these things. No, we don't buy it. So it's again, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. You just tell your buddy, he should be tracking when he's driving for business Versus when it's just pure personal or there's no real business expectation. He's driving down to the beach or something like that. You would say, no, don't, don't, don't be a hog, be a piggy. Right. Right. So we got, (laughs) we got a little bit more time here.
0: You got to get running.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. So whatever you Uh, need. Well, I'm
0: going to, I'm going to go to my, my personal question. So I just got my taxes done finally. So just using this as an example, there's ordinary income from my day job, which I still work as an engineer, by the way. And Mm -hmm. my passive losses from deductions from all my single family homes and my my syndications, it looks Mm -hmm. like what happened is they brought over about what 25,000 from my, my deductions over to my ordinary.
1: Yeah. So, so the way it works is we have something called passive activity loss rules. So if you are in a passive activity, those, that income always can offset other passive income. So if I make money in real estate, then my real estate losses or deductions can offset that first. If my deductions exceed my income, creating a situation where there's losses. So like in real estate, it's very easy to create losses because we have depreciation. And we can accelerate that depreciation doing cost segregation. So we can, we could really turbocharge this thing and end up with a lot of extra deduction, but we don't have the income to offset it. So we're like, Oh, crud. Now we end up with a bunch of passive loss. Most people, you can't take it. If you're a real estate professional, you can take it. And then you fell into the middle category in the middle category is if you're an active participant. So if you're actively directing the management of your real estate, then you fall as an active participant, and you can write off up to 25,000. So when I looked at your return, I don't want to disclose all your numbers, you had more depreciation and more loss than than you had real estate income, and you were able to offset a good chunk, like I, I saw your income, there was a big chunk of income that got written off, so you didn't pay any tax on the money you made off your real estate, plus you got an extra $25,000 of loss that offset your other income. So when I looked at your total taxes, you didn't pay much in taxes lane. You paid almost nothing in taxes. I'm sure you you know that. You got a big old refund. Yeah, my uh I pay pay less taxes than a
0: teacher. Say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, um, that's because I, I don't make as much in salary. I mean, I barely made a hundred grand working for the state.
1: A hundred thousand dollars is the threshold where it's, where that twenty five thousand dollar deduction starts to phase out. It goes one dollar for every two dollars. It phases out. So if you make one hundred fifty thousand dollars, you lose the entire twenty five thousand. So you were right right there where you got to take the entire 25,000 if you had made more money that was more taxable income it would have reduced that amount and then that's when one of the spouses would need to qualify as a real estate professional. Right. Don't you love stuff like that it just makes your head hurt and you're god bless it.
0: So I think I think I had like about $50,000 of <laughs> passive losses and I was only going to take 25 of it was the cap that I could
1: Oh, let me go to your actual, so I'm looking at your schedule, and again, I don't want to get all through all your numbers, but you had uh, an extra $13,000 of income, you had, well, let's see, the total loss, you had 38000 that we we're able to take, so you had your twenty-five plus the thirteen that you were able to take, so you're able to take $38,000 of, of loss, which this year was about what you had. You had some carry forward from the previous year that, that just keeps carrying forward. See if I can find it.
0: So that carry forward gets added to the stuff that I didn't use up this year, the, yep. the remaining it, off the 25.
1: Yeah, it goes into next year. So I'm wanna, I'm trying to see where my loss carry forward is. I'm just looking at a lot of numbers. You have a kind of a lengthy return because you have so many pieces of property. You have a pretty extensive schedule E is what we call that.
0: Yeah. And that's why I'm trying to get rid of these single family homes because it's just so confusing. Yeah, you
1: had what I think it was, was $95,000 of passive loss. You had uh, an extra $10,000 of extra income off of passive activities, which created an $85,000 total. So you're going to have probably an extra, what's the passive loss is carrying forward. So so we we had another $13,000 of other income that was passive. So uh, you're going to have $58,000. It looks like, I think it's a carry forward. We were able to take a total of $38,000 of deduction against us. That's pretty good. And so we carried through the extra $25,000 onto the return. I shouldn't say we, your accountant, carried the extra $25,000 through. And in that offset, I can see your total wages, which is between you and your spouse. Uh, Actually, this is just you. So you must have just gotten married. Are you married right now? Planning to. Pardon? Planning to. Oh, see, I'm looking at this going, I'm thinking that you're married, and I'm looking at this going, this is single. Yeah, this
0: is a um, long time ago. This is
1: Yeah, 2017. So, yeah, you're always going back into the past, and you're, we have a long time before we actually file a return. And for folks out there, I would just say always file an extension. Give yourself as much time as humanly possible to file your tax return. Your taxes are due on April 15th period, so make sure that you pay it if you have an anticipation of owing money but this gives us lots of flexibility. There's things we could do to lower your taxes even even all the way up until September, in many cases depending on whether you have a business. In that for last year, so like for 2018, we still, we're gonna be take, making moves to offset people's 2018 taxes all the way until September of 2019. There's still contributions that companies can make to retirement plans and things like that that will allow us to lower their taxes you can still personally make contributions to things like IRAs up until April 15th. So there's a lot of fun stuff that you can still do. Yeah.
0: And so for like last year, I had to pay these like quarterly estimated payments, but then Mm -hmm. I got this big refund check. So does that mean I've got the green light to like not pay any quarterly estimated taxes for 2019?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can absolutely reduce it. You shouldn't be paying to where you get a refund. You should be paying just enough to pay your tax. Yeah. cover your tax now it doesn't mean that you don't pay quarterlies now some people don't pay quarterly if you're looking at one i'd rather pay the penalty and interest on it it's the six uh, yeah, percent yeah
0: yeah that's okay okay i re, I didn't realize it was
1: that low i mean that's
0: nothing i'm never yeah paying
1: quarterlies then yeah well i mean it's a little bit you have a penalty too and that's like five percent or something like it ends up being oh. that you pay a little bit of t- like it's thousands of dollars on on a pretty big chunk of money but it but have that cash and have it available to you to be investing. If you're using it for that, then I would say you you, you want to do the you want to run the numbers and see whether it's better for you to have the cash. In real estate, personally, I think that you can do a lot more with the cash, especially if you're working on properties, fixing them up, or things like. You can get a yeah. pretty like, good size return. What
0: the what's the um the fee? Because maybe it's better to put it into like my life insurance policy and just collect the rate there.
1: You know life insurance is based on the s and p for the most part, so if you're doing an i u l
0: yeah i think I think my rates it's like a whole life, so it's like a fixed four percent or something like that
1: then you're going to be better off paying your tax, Okay. yeah, because you're paying more on that money, so you know realistically i'll just I'll put the tax hat on of a of a fiduciary and say, hey, you're better off paying your quarterlies and not having any penalties and things like that, and but not overpaying I wouldn't want to be in a situation where I'm getting refunds. I want to be in a situation where I'm not paying. I've paid enough. I paid what I what I thought I was going to pay. I'm looking at it every year and saying, "Hey, I don't want to. I don't want to give the government an interest free loan. I would rather have my money just disp- available to me." And if you are in a cash crunch business, meaning that you need the capital to do your whether you're fixing up properties or whether you're growing your business it may be better to do that than to get a credit card or something else. Like make sure you have no other sources of debt because the because int- you're going to be paying a lot less to the government than you're going to be paying to visa or master. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's,
0: yeah, I got surprised this past year because I was, I got a huge refund check, like over 10
1: grand, Yeah, you did good. I mean, but that's because you ended up carrying forward those losses, and I'm sure that they weren't anticipating that you'd get that $25,000 loss. They're thinking you're going to phase out. Yeah,
0: I I always phased out in the past
1: because I got paid more. Yeah. My guess is you're probably going to phase out this year. That is probably not going to happen again next year. Yeah, yeah.
0: But then I'm doing a lot of these 1031 where I'm getting paying it back from the first time I did the 1031 exchange. So I'm going to empty up that whole bucket of passive (laughs) losses
1: this year. you're carrying forward a bunch and you're going to be able to, yeah, you're, you're going to get that benefit at that time. So it'll offset a lot of that gain.
0: So, so kind of getting off myself and my selfish uh, needs here. Last question for kind of the general folks out there. Most of my investors are, you know, more high net worth making over 150, Mm 200,000. They're just, their passive losses are just always going to be stacking
1: up. There's just, unless they become that professional status one of the spouses it only takes one if you're filing jointly it could be you know it could be the non-working spouse if you're in that situation one of the spouses would have to qualify as a real estate professional it need in order to do so you just have to spend 750 hours in real estate and it's not like they have to be actively managing the real estate they could just be looking for investments driving around you know when you're going out on the weekend and you're looking for properties that counts
0: what if they like uh, to
1: watch all the HGTV and stuff like that. You're the one who's tracking your time that you're spending on real estate. I don't know how, whether that was
0: that friend, it's that friend
1: that's (laughs) that friend that likes to do the HGTV. (laughs) It depends on why you're watching it. Like there's a lot of professionals that watch things because it's part, and that counts as time. I wouldn't say, Hey, I did 40 hours a week of HGTV (laughs) and that's going to work. But I would say that, Hey, if I'm trying to get some ideas and I'm actively involved in that area where I'm doing some fix up and things like that, then that would probably count. But the more important criteria is that it's your number one use of your time, your uh, your business time. So if you have a full-time job, then the 750 hours is threshold one, but it has to be the number one use of time. So if you're working 1,500 hours in something, then in real estate, you'd have to spend 1,501 hours. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. It has so, to be your,
0: so now you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, if you're assuming 10-hour work days... Oh, you
1: it, it's almost impossible to qualify as a real estate
0: professional. Yeah. So you the hours on the day job for your
1: spouse needs to be less than half time then to mm-hmm. even have a shot at it to even have a shot. Yep. And then you're aggregating your big, you we have to make an election on your return to aggregate all your properties too. And you know, there's some little nuances, but if you're in the ballpark, it's huge because again, if you have real estate, we could choose to accelerate the depreciation. A lot of people think they're stuck at 39 years on commercial property or 27 and a half years. That's the starting point. We could go in and do a cost segregation on the building and get some pretty massive depreciation. So for example, I just did one, uh, or had one done for me uh, yesterday and we got the report back. It was a $1.2 million duplex in California and the extra depreciation in year one was $68,000. So that means that we were able to, for that particular taxpayer, that they're in California and they're paying close to 50%. That is a thirty, what is $39,000 win is what that means to them dollars and cents wise. And the cost seg costs them about three grand. I don't do the cost segregations. So I referred out, but the, but the quote on the cost segregation is right around 3000 and they're going to get an extra. They're going to save tax wise, like actual dollars. They're going to save about thirty eight thousand dollars next year. You can do that as long if 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 you qualify as a real estate professional, or if you have a lots and lots of passive income coming through. So, it's always one of those two scenarios.
0: Yeah, and then two thousand eighteen, a lot of people have jumped into new newer deals with me. So, unfortunately, if well, you, fortunately or you, fortunately. They didn't make any money in the first year if you jumped in the end of the year, but you got some deduction, You're going to get a lot of deductions
1: from the In and, and you just carry those forward into the following years. I mean, if, if I'm a passive investor in something along the lines of a private placement, then probably not going to qualify as a real estate professional. That's what I do. But it's going to offset the income. So let's say I'm getting $20,000 a year off of that investment or whatever it is. I'm not paying tax on it because I have all this depreciation and other things that are offsetting that income. So it ends up being a nice cash flow position. I have the money, but I don't have to pay tax on it. That's not a bad situation to be in. And that's real estate's kind of unique in that position because that, that's literally how it works. You could be generating lots of rents, but having zero taxable income as a result.
0: And if you're, uh, a high paid professional, your spouses, the homework assigned for all you listeners is trying to make up a plea case to get them to go part-time. So maybe there's a chance that they can be make you guys a real great
1: Yeah, when I look at it and I see lots of losses that are carrying forward, then that's where we have that discussion and say, Hey, by the way, if one of your spouse if one of you guys qualified, here's the amount that it equals right now in your pocket. And uh, not to get crazy, but there's some, I've seen scenarios where the spouse who was working was making less than that dollar amount. And I said, you know, where you're looking at, is like if they quit doing what they were doing and focused on your real estate portfolio, what would that equal? Just them not working would actually increase the amount of money you have at your disposal because they have, you'd be able to qualify as a real estate professional and you'd be getting all that money back.
0: Right. I mean, nothing to freak out. It carries forward, but time value of money, right? You got mm-hmm. rather get that money today than wait a couple of years to get that.
1: And the fact of the matter is that in real estate, if we're 1031 exchanging or now they have the qualified opportunity zones and all these things, it's a good chance I'm not paying tax on it anyway. So those losses just continue to roll forward and roll forward and get bigger and bigger. That We call that a tax appetite. And that's where we're looking and saying, how do we satisfy that appetite? And we look at ways to actually do it. And we say, hey, you got all these all these beautiful things that are there, uh, <laughs> a lot of money that you could write off, and let's find a way to do it. Yeah, it's kind of like that the
0: W two worker who has that sick leave just building up, but like, you can't take it because everybody will just like talk crap about you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Just keep building
0: up and building up.
1: You're hitting a sore spot, in our office. We got, we got, we we have it all called PTO, and it's yeah, and everybody at the end of the year is trying to burn it up, going, oh man. Uh, you should just be like all the other companies out there, and,
0: and they say, oh, we'll give you unlimited, so that way when we fire you, we don't have to pay you out for it. <laughs> <laughs> just get all your work done.
1: Uh, we've looked at that, and that's yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah, need, no. To
0: get, need to get that progressive progressives so. we let them
1: roll over a ton of it but we, we actually want them to take the time off
0: yeah
1: there's something about burning people up that just doesn't really work that well when you're, you're trying to grow and maintain we have about 200 employees and we've been around for 20 something years and like the, at the end of the day i want my i want my people to be healthy and i want them to sometimes that they, they'll they'll work themselves into the ground you're like no 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 you actually need to take some time off and uh, get out of dodge and and get a little checkup from the neck up in the break yeah we'll we'll send them to you lane and then you'll we'll sit on a beach somewhere
0: yeah talk with me for four hours and one minute a day. <laughs> it's not very scalable. but anyway yeah like once you get your contact information out there for people to get a hold of you and yeah we'll see you guys. we'll see you guys in hawaii when you guys come out
1: yeah so we're coming um february 16th and Lane, we'll talk to you, but you may be speaking at that one too. If It, it looks like the invite's going to be extended. which would be cool for your people to come watch you. And it's just a really cool thing we're doing with iHeartRadio and some of the local RIAs, uh, really trying to work with the local islanders to help them, just because the houses are so flipping expensive on Oahu right now. It's like $800,000 gets you nothing. But there's so many places in the country where you can get some huge returns, including like what you do, your syndications and just opening up some eyes to the way it works when you have passive income coming in. So uh, we're big proponents and I'm a big proponent because I see the results on tax returns of creating multiple streams of passive income. And passive means rents, royalties, dividends, interest, and capital gains, as opposed to just working your butt off for a paycheck. And it's not even close in the tax world. Passive income is king. The best treated income out there, and the worst treated income is the guy that's working at McDonald's, where they're getting taxed on every dollar immediately. And they don't even get they don't even get their own dollar back. They get they, they get it withheld, and they get sixty cents on the dollar, and it's horrible. So uh, we're going to be there at the Hawaii Convention Center teaching for a day and bringing uh, some different concepts to to the local community to hopefully help them start building up an investment portfolio so they can afford to stay on Oahu. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so you know, I'm not a big conference type guy. More kind of let's go to the bar and hang out for a little bit, build professional relationships there. So, no, we'll I get, get you. There, we'll be there Friday, Friday night before. So,
1: I'll come and have buy, a beer with you a guys. a couple
0: beers and hopefully, you know, it takes you longer, it takes you shorter than four hours to drink those.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll we'll make do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And if anybody ever wants to get a hold of us, uh eight hundred seven oh six four seven four one is eight hundred seven oh six four seven four one is the number of the firm. They can always call in and just uh you know, mention Lane and we, we'll give you a free risk analysis. You'll have somebody actually walk you through to see whether or not we could actually help you. We do that as a courtesy.
0: Cause Lane's a good guy. Yeah, and you're a good guy too, Toby. Thanks for all thanks for all the help
1: with my return. Hey. It's, uh, it's always a little, it's always fun to see somebody's numbers. Yeah. All right. Totally. Well, thanks. Take it easy, man. All right. I'll catch hey. you later.